Millions of women worldwide swear by Ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Theralogix for balancing hormone levels. Theralogix also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Theralogix products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Theralogix, supplements from science. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my splendidly spectacular co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And the lovely Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. How's it going? Good. It's been a while since we've seen each other. And, you know, we've all been, I don't know that we've told our listeners much about this yet, but we've all been kind of busy working on a book. We're going to put a book out and it'll be a little while, but we're starting to write the chapters now. And I'm having a new appreciation for people that do that for a living. It is really difficult. (laughs) What chapter are you working on, Carrie? I am. So I'm doing three all at once. So we divided the book, you know, between, between the three of us and the three chapters that I'm going on are all pretty closely tied to, uh, tied together. I'm doing the FET, like preparation, frozen embryo transfer preparation and, uh, chapter along with the numbers chapter, um, of what happens to your numbers all the way through along with the fresher frozen. And so I, I'm doing all three of them at the same time, because if I don't, I'm going to end up repeating myself and everybody's going to be bored to tears. And I really don't want that. And so those are the three that I'm working on. What about you guys? I just wrapped up my chapter on everything you need to have like taken care of before you start your IVF cycle, like all of your other health issues. So talking about everything from diabetes to high blood pressure to, you know, obesity and, you know, if you have seizure disorders, all kinds of things like that. Um, And then I'm right now working on kind of what happens on a day-to-day basis um, when you're actually going through the IVF stimulation, like what you're doing, what you're, what you're experiencing, um, you know, what are, what kind of decisions are getting made based on the findings of your visits and all that kind of good stuff. And I'm sort of working on some of the opening chapters, like things that people should consider, you know, kind of objectively, you know, like Susan always says, you make the decision to do IVF with your head and with your heart. And, And by the way, that's what our book is about is IVF. And so kind of things head and heart that you should think about when you're trying to decide to do IVF. Um, I also kind of been working on or have worked a little bit on the chapter about the actual egg retrieval and kind of what happens when you do have the egg retrieval done, just kind of step by step, because there's so many little details. And even as when I see a patient, I just don't have enough time to talk about all the itty bitty little details, things that you may be, you know, considering or want to think about or want to know about before you do IVF. So hopefully this book will be really helpful in that regard in terms of talking about little tiny details that maybe just have gotten overlooked in the midst of the the bigger picture. I, so, I, yeah. I, I enjoy like writing in little snippets and then I come back and I'm like, oh, I got to, I got to put this in. I gotta put this in. <laughs> it's like, you think you explain it and then we come back because, you know, you've gone to see a patient or whatever you're doing and you're like, oh, but I need to, you know, 
go from this angle as well. It's, it's all the things we wish we had all the time to tell everybody. Mm-hmm. I definitely have had moments where I've gone back to proofread a chapter and I'm like, oh, I left out this entire big section <laughs> and then go back and click, 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 click on my little computer and then print it out again. I'm pretty sure I think I'm going to end up killing at least one tree all by myself with this, <laughs> with all the proofreading that happens going back and forth. I'm like, oh, well, this no, this is not the right word. It needs to be this word and that word. And maybe I should phrase it like this so that it's super easily like understood and putting all my crazy analogies, like it's fine when you're saying it, but when you write it down, if you don't have the right context, it sounds like <laughs> you are smoking something when you're writing yeah, the chapter. When you come back and read it again, you're like, okay, that was a little weird. I don't think I'll put that in there. Yeah, like, and I, just, I need to segue <laughs> a little bit better than I did here because, um, yeah. Well, and I find that when I talk to patients too, I've had, I'll be in the middle of talking to somebody and be like, oh my gosh, I've got to put that in the chapter, you know? And so it's really helpful. So, you know, if you guys think of anything that you think we should put in our chapter, whether you're about to go through IVF, you've got, you're in the middle of it, or it's afterwards, let mm-hmm. us know, because it'll be really helpful for somebody else. You know, I wish, wish we could get a book out for you right now if you're doing IVF, but but if there's things that you think of as you go through the process, um, be sure and let us know, because that will be really helpful for us. Or if you have any short little anecdotes that are just ridiculous yeah. things that happen to you, and you're okay with us using them in the book, let us know because we will, that's, we're thinking about all of those things right now. Yeah. We don't, we don't want this to be a textbook. We don't want it to be like, uh, like put you to sleep. We want it to be a little bit funny too. So if you think of some funny things to put in there, just let us know. We'd, we'd love to hear those. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or recurrent pregnancy loss, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX testing. If found, uterine inflammation can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. So we are going to do a question episode today, and we're going to kind of do just a random kind of hodgepodge of a lot of different questions that we've gotten, and hopefully something we go over will be helpful for you. Um, Susan, do you have any questions for us? I'm kind of laughing because Susan kind of has gone out, gone out for a coughing fit. So she may not be quite ready yet, but she's pulling our questions up right now. Carrie and I may have to just make one up or something. <laughs> I'm going to say the database that Susan has uh, kept on a regular basis is absolutely huge. So even on the best day, it always takes a couple of minutes for this to get pulled up, uh, notwithstanding the trying to kill off a co-host mid-episode. <laughs> All right. Well, I am back <laughs> and ready to start with some questions for today. So my first one is pretty short and sweet, but it's a good one. What is the best prenatal to take while pregnant? And why do you choose that one or those? Okay. So there's layers of this answer. Um, <laughs> the first layer of this answer is the, the best prenatal to take is the one you will take every day. Yes, um, that's the best answer for sure. And, uh, and part of the reason why we say that is because at the beginning of the fertility journey, everybody is all about the, the supplements, the vitamin, vitamins, the add-ons, the, all the things. Well, and so some people get really, um, over-enthusiastic about it. And as a result, they end up with a whole pharmacy or supplement store in their bathroom and, um, and it gets overwhelming and then they stop taking absolutely everything. And so 
First and foremost, the one you're willing to take, because I would take one that you get off of maybe not necessarily the guy on the corner hawking pills, but, you know, any any random one that you pick up in if that's the one you're willing to take, I want you to take that. Well, one thing I would add, too, is um, I agree 100 percent with that. And, and, and a lot of people do take a lot of supplements. And, you know, when you get pregnant. Many people get really nauseated and just can't keep much of anything down, much less prenatal vitamin and a lot of extra supplements. Um, one thing I would say is I would be a little hesitant to use gummy vitamins. And in fact, this is in our book chapter. A lot of the gummy vitamins are mostly gelatin and there's really no regulation of those types of vitamins. So you really don't know what you're getting with those. A lot of them don't have iron in them either. In fact, I think there is a gummy vitamin or two that does have iron, but most of them don't have iron in them. And that's probably one of the most important supplements right behind vitamin D and folic acid that you need in your prenatal vitamins. So just make sure you read the label. There's also some other ones that are really kind of lean and mean. Um, I won't name the brand, but there's a brand that has a really low number of vitamins in it because the assumption about that one is that they designed it for people that they feel like have a really good diet and are getting kind of the usual things that people get. And the problem with that is you just don't really know. You know, you don't know if you're really getting adequate amounts of the vitamins and minerals that you need. So I'm a little hesitant on some of the ones that are really don't have very many components to them because you just can't assume that you are getting what you need with that. But I do want to say that one thing that it's important for our listeners to also understand is vitamins are not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. Yeah. So you're essentially taking most of these companies at their at their word that what's on that label is what you're actually getting. And so there are a couple of regulatory agencies that are not government agencies, but kind of independent They're watchdogs. watchdogs. <laughs> exactly. And so if if you're wanting to get a good quality, you know, vitamin that you want to really trust what's in there and, you know, those those types of important things, watch for the vitamins that are um, go through those extra mechanisms so that, you know, if you, you're wanting your 800 micrograms of folic acid, you're getting your 800 micrograms of folic acid. Mm -hmm. If you go back to episode number 127 for us, we talked with Dr. Mark Ratner. Uh, he is the chief medical officer from Therologics and went through prenatal vitamins with him. Um, and then if you go to episode 186, we went, uh, we talked to um, Ryan Woodbury from Needed, who also went through prenatal vitamins with us. So those two episodes in particular dove way into this topic. So give those a listen if you're still interested and want more information about that. Good stuff. All right, our next one. Hi, all. I have found so much peace listening to your podcast, knowing I'm an informed patient. And thank you for listening. <laughs> I am 31. My husband is 28. We've been trying to conceive since October 22. I came off OCPs at the time. In 2023, progressed my cycles, um, became longer and longer, up to 62 days at one point. I met with my OB who induced my cycle with progestin shots times two with two rounds of Clomid 50 and 100. I have underwent an unremarkable sonohistogram, and there is no male factor. We then met with a fertility doc and was diagnosed with PCOS, AMH of 15. All of their lab work has been normal. I am scheduled to start IVF at the end of the month. Is there any additional testing you'd recommend heading into the cycle or prior to transfer? Well, I mean, the typical testing that we do, we do a lot of infectious disease testing just on the front end to make sure that you're healthy. Um, we also want to check your cavity to make sure it looks okay and check your fallopian tubes. Um, your husband, I think you said, has been checked with a semen analysis. Um, that's really important to do. You may even want to consider freezing sperm for backup if you think you'll have difficulty collecting or if he has kind of a borderline low count. Um, 
that may be helpful. Those are really kind of the main things leading into the IBS cycle. I think the fact that you're 31 and you have a really great AMH, I think you'll do really well. And I think I think they'll get a lot of a lot of eggs and hopefully make a lot of really nice embryos. I'm a proponent of also doing an HSG, even though you don't need your fallopian tubes. I, I think it's good to know that we don't have swollen fallopian tubes or hydrosalpinks because that could be a reason that if you haven't already had that checked out, that it, it's good information to have and, and it's an actionable item. Mm-hmm. Um, with PCOS in particular, insulin resistance becomes a much bigger issue. You're at a higher risk than the average bearer for gestational diabetes. And so I would for sure want to make sure at a minimum you have an A1C checked. Um, insulin levels, you know, a lot of times we consider metformin. Um, be careful going on any sort of steroids because that's going to screw with your sugar even more because that's what steroids just do. Um, and so those, those are the things that I would think about particularly before transfer to make sure that you are totally in the clear with that. And then especially on these question episodes where we're skipping topics all over the place, (laughs) episodes that go relate to this one are 136, 169, and 195. So those are a lot of the PCOS episodes. So go listen to those for a little more information about about PCOS. Awesome. All right. Hello, I am 35 years old with the AMH of 1.47. Husband has low motility and sperm count. We tried three rounds of IUI. Third resulted in a chemical pregnancy. Next, we did a round of IVF. I was on gonal F, clomid, cetratide, triggered with Novarel. I had 13 follicles, 11 in the optimal size range, 16 to 24 millimeters. After the retrieval, I was told I had EFS, empty follicle syndrome. During IUI retrievals, I was still monitoring my LH hormone and noticed I didn't spike until three to four days after IUI administration. When I flagged this, I was told home test strips don't work on all women. Considering empty follicle syndrome, um, could that have been an indication of my reaction to the trigger? What is your ex? experience with EFS. How have you addressed this? Thank you so much. I mean, I think when you go to egg retrieval, I always tell patients and to make a big point of saying this, that, you know, we can't see the egg. The egg is microscopic. It's one cell big. Um, I think it's it's really anybody's guess as to why the eggs didn't come out. It could be that the follicle is empty. I don't know. I don't have a test for that. Um, I mean, it could be that the eggs were immature because sometimes immature eggs are almost like super glued in the follicle, the fluid filled sac that surrounds the egg. And so, quite frankly, we just don't know. We don't get the egg out why we don't get it out. And I'm betting that your doctor worked really hard. A lot of times we'll even put fluid back in the follicle and kind of um, expand it back up or blow it back up with fluid and try again. But at some point when you do that enough, you just you get so clotty and bloody, it, it clogs your needle and you can't continue to do that. So you know, if you were my patient, and that's has certainly happens to all of us as physicians, and, and, and it happens to some patients, you know, as well, what I would be worried about and what I would focus on is the maturity of the egg. And so I probably would give you either HCG or give you probably more likely give you um, um, HMG or Metapure, which is has both FSH and LH. Because sometimes when some women have somewhat immature eggs, they just don't come out very well. And so the other thing I would try and do when you came back through, if I could, is try and see if I could push you an extra day and push your follicles a little bit bigger. Because sometimes the eggs just don't come out very well. Even if we measure the follicles and they look like they're mature, sometimes some women just need another day to be pushed in order to get the egg out. So um, so I'm sorry that happened to you, but I 
I'm sure that when you go through again, or if you go through again, your doctor is going to do some things to change that and hopefully improve the number of eggs that you get this time around. What are your thoughts, Carrie? I don't think having an LH strip going high three, four days after um, a trigger for an IUI would necessarily change anything that I would do, Mm -hmm. um, primarily because this is entirely based on an absorption issue. And so you either absorb or you do not. And oftentimes with, with patients who have ovulatory issues from whatever source, their LH levels are not particularly consistent. Sometimes they stay high all the time. Sometimes they waver right on the line of being able to be picked up or not. And so um, ovulation predictor kits are a great tool at home. Um, the the more technical you get, the less we rely on them. Mm-hmm. And so I don't I don't think I would do I don't think I would have done anything differently in that situation either. I think I probably would have gone with the same thing if I remember correctly. You you got a pregnal or Navarel trigger, so you've already got the HCG. I would consider a dual trigger to get um, the LH component of that as well if that is appropriate for your cycle. Um, I think what Abby said about pushing another day makes sense. I think. Flushing makes sense. I think um, sometimes going a couple extra hours when you do the retrieval can make a difference. Now, there's always the risk that there's <laughs> yeah. the, that you miss everything. Um, that doesn't happen very often. We're we're pretty OCD about that, and so the difference is instead of doing a retrieval at 35 hours, we would do it at 36 or something along that that line. 36 and versus mm-hmm. 37. Um, you know, it's also possible that you ovulated prematurely. And that at the time that they were going in, there were no eggs left to get there because they were they were already in the pelvis. Um, and that's something your doc's going to have a better feel for, you know, how much fluid was in there. Um, but those those are kind of the things that that I think of when I get far fewer follicles than I would have anticipated, mm-hmm. or far far fewer eggs than I would have anticipated. So, what I, I'm one of those people who I'm not really a big fan of the term empty follicle syndrome mm-hmm. because I. I have probably had less than five people in my entire career that truly did not have diminished ovarian reserve or something else that didn't explain this type of scenario. And, you know, it, it's probably like carrying that either, uh, either an absorption issue or perhaps even like a receptor issue. And it's not that there's no egg within your follicle. It's that we couldn't get an egg mm-hmm. out of your follicle, yeah. which I think are, are two very, very different issues. Um, I don't think that there's any published data that I'm aware of, of true empty follicle syndrome where there is no egg, but we're not necessarily getting an egg. Carrie, do you have a comment on that? I'm, while you are talking, just talk slowly. <laughs> so give me enough time to do a quick search. There's nothing that I know of off the top yeah. of my head. I don't know how you do that study, frankly. I know. Unless you took the ovary out or something and dissected it. The things you guys have been talking about are things that can help improve. And just because you've had one of, I mean, it's a, it a, it's a catastrophic event. I mean, when yeah. you go into your agriculture and you get absolutely nothing, it mm-hmm. is it is absolutely devastating. Mm-hmm. But there are often, you know, tweaks and things that we can do. And I would say most of the time we can get something in the future. Mm-hmm. Now there's there's always going to be the exception to that rule. And like like I have a couple of people that I'm thinking about that I've experienced that I think that they had a receptor issue, that there wasn't anything, we couldn't overpower that receptor issue mm-hmm. with any of the things we were doing. But um it's it's that's a that's a tough one to deal with. But I think a lot of times there's hope in future cycles. 
So just at a, a quick glance, um, this, this article does talk about both types of empty follicle syndrome, uh, the true type versus the, um, the essentially inadequate trigger type um, and and says that a lot of the risk factors are diminished ovarian reserve, resistance to stimulation, which it doesn't really sound like you have, obesity, yeah. we don't know about, um, but those don't explain everything. You know, there's all of the other really random things, the receptor defects, the um, abnormalities of the, the molecules themselves. And so... Um, and by the way, there is really no test for a receptor defect. That's just yeah. that's yeah. just a guess. We don't really yeah. know that. And receptors are essentially what all of the hormones or medicines bind to that end up causing other things down the road to happen that are happening in your stimulation, such as maturing the egg, helping the egg release from the little cells that are holding on to it and that type of thing. Yeah. And and the the prevalence of this is really, really low. It's looking at 0.05, 0.07. Looks like truly it's well under 1%. Um, and looks like it's the same in, in different types of protocols. So yeah, I think I think it's really rare. I I would not let this stop you from trying again. I think it's it's worth it to try a different type of stim, a different yeah. type of trigger, different hours, like any or all of those things, you don't even have to change all of them at once. Um, but I, I, I would not quit on this one. I would keep going, particularly because you're only 35. Like, and I think her AMH was really good too, right? It was, it was pretty like high. One, it was one, one point something. Oh, okay. I was thinking yeah. it was higher than that. Like, it, but still, that's, but still that's good enough. There should have been eggs. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right. Let's do our next one. I'm 42 years old, and so is my partner. We have been trying to conceive for 10 months. Unfortunately, we knew we waited too long, but are still trying. I did have a miscarriage back in July. We've seen two REs and had testing done. AMH is 2, antral follicle count 14, FSH 8.6. Um, had an FSH of 13.9 on day 10 after taking Clomid. My insurance wants my FSH to be 12 or under at my age to cover IVF, so I failed the Clomid challenge. My partner's sperm is normal. Both RAs did not recommend IUI or IVF because they didn't think it would be increase our chances in becoming pregnant, especially because we have to pay out of pocket. Their recommendation was to continue trying on our own or consider egg donation. Do you think we should push for IVF? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. I mean, yeah, I definitely have lived in a state for many years where most people didn't have coverage, and that's changed a lot now. But with an AMH of two, she has an AMH of two, right? And an antral follicle count of 14, that is pretty darn good. Now, the Clomid Challenge Test, that's a test that not many people do anymore. For the first about decade of my career, I did that. We don't do that so much anymore. The only and time we do that test is when an insurance company tells us we have to do it. Yeah, mm -hmm. which I don't know of any insurance companies that even know what it is. So <laughs> usually you look at a day three FSH value. And if you're saying that you did the Clomid Challenge Test and they check the FSH because usually what you would do is you check at day two or three FSH and estrogen. Then you take Clomid. Then you check the FSH again. And that's what they did with you. And I mean, if your baseline FSH is good, which I bet it is, I mean, you know, I certainly agree that at 42, it's not optimal. But if anybody's going to get pregnant at 42, it's going to be a woman with an AMH of two because the more eggs that we can retrieve, which, you know, the AMH, of, AMH of is indicative that we should get a decent number of eggs. I mean, I have at least, I'm thinking a 41 or 42 year old right now 
that had a great AMH and we got like 16 eggs and she only had one that was normal, but it only takes one. So if you were my patient, I'd say, let's go to egg retrieval. I think you'll do well. Yeah, I I would say the exact same thing. I mean, your numbers are good, especially for 42. Now, keep in mind, there is a decent chance that you will have to do multiple cycles of IVF. Yeah. Um, and so that that is true whether insurance covers it or not and certainly it's more palatable when insurance does but there's something that doesn't quite make sense in this insurance situation of why are they using this outdated test which i've run into before uh, she didn't have insurance coverage so it's not an insurance issue she didn't have insurance she 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 does they're denying her because of this oh I, I actually do insurance reviews and they're, this used to be way more prevalent and um, I so don't. So people would look it, at Clomid challenge tests, really? Yeah. Like over the years, over the years, fewer and fewer insurances require it. Uh-huh. Uh, I would say 10 years ago, there was a decent number of people. Now it, it it's pretty rare to force you to do a Clomid t- challenge test. Yeah. I would I would encourage you to ask your REI if you can, if they can do a peer-to-peer review mm-hmm. um, to see if your insurance might um, take their professional expertise. Um, you know, I, I'm a little bit nervous about that since it sounds like your REs don't think it's worthwhile. Um, I, I think all three of us think that you should go for it if that's what your heart is drawing you to do. You might end up you know, going down a path of thinking about egg donor or something like that. But I agree that I don't think that has to be your first choice at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All well, right. Susan's looking up our next question. Those peer-to-peers, you can always request that your doc do that with the insurance company. Um, they are, they're kind of a pain in the neck to set up. And they are. <laughs> they're, they're even more of a pain in the neck to execute because like I've been 10 minutes behind on you know, calling for a peer-to-peer because I had a patient in front of me that needed attention for an extra 10 minutes. We're not talking about hours. We're talking about minutes. And they deny, like they refused to talk to me because I wasn't at the right time. Um, And so just kind of know insurance companies very intentionally don't make it easy. Yeah, um, they don't. And and I've, I've talked to someone before too, that like, no matter how much I begged and pleaded, they're like, well, this is what the insurance says. Sorry, you know. So if there's something mm-hmm. written in black and white that says if the FSH and the Clomid Challenge test is above twelve, they're probably. I mean, they might bend, but my experience, they're pretty. They're pretty. They they don't bend. And on what state you're in. So yeah. if you're in a mandated state, so a state that requires um, IVF for um, if there's a medical indication, um, sometimes those are the ones that you can fight the most. Um, so just kind of words of advice. All right. Let's talk a little bit about PCOS. Um, thank you for the podcast. Y'all, you all have <laughs> I made it y'all. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll have calmed my nerves with infertility and I have learned so much. My question is what seems to be the most successful treatment to conceive with PCOS? Is it meds, IUI, or do most women need IVF? I am 29, all labs normal, semen is normal, AMH 11.3. My only symptom for my lean PCOS is acne, irregular bleeding occasionally before my cycle starts, and ultrasound showing lots of follicles. My husband, I've been taking letrozole 2.5 to 7.5 milligrams um, when the dominant follicle is there, timed intercourse for the past year. 
no positive pregnancy tests. Last month, we tried our first IUI, had two follicles, 18 and 19. It failed. We were doing another IUI cycle, but I'm wondering if more IUIs are even worth trying. He had normal sperm? Didn't uh, say, I don't think. Say she said everything was normal, maybe. Amen okay. was normal. Okay. So there's a couple of different ways to answer your question. Um, <laughs> with with the what's the most effective way? There's most effective and there's fastest and yeah, least expensive. Yeah, and there's most most and or least expensive. And a lot of the for a lot of the answers of what we do, the fastest way to get pregnant is IVF because it puts it puts us in control of a lot of the factors. Um, most people don't particularly want to hear that. And so <laughs> when when you ask the question of, you know, what's the most effective, IUI versus timed intercourse, for example, usually IUI is going to add a, a couple extra percentage points of success. Usually just clomid letrozole by itself is maybe 5 to 9% success rate, whereas adding the IUI in as well is going to take it to 11 to 15% or 12 to 15%. Um, part of that is because we are we're monitoring closer in an IUI cycle. So if you're not growing an egg, we catch it. If you're growing too many, we catch it. If you need a few more days before trigger, we catch it. All of those things. Plus we're giving additional medications to ensure that that ovulation really does occur, which don't always happen in a timed intercourse cycle. Um, and so, you know, I think you get a couple extra percentage points there, but they're nothing compared to IVF, which is going to be in the 60s, if not 70s or higher, given your young age and good counts. I would also consider um, doing a little bit more investigation on his sperm because it, the way you phrase certain things, I think you have been having monitoring even with your intercourse cycles and the fact that you've had this many intercourse cycles mm -hmm. without success actually makes me a little more concerned that you may have an underlying sperm problem that may not have been diagnosed via the conventional semen analysis. Um, there's a newer test out there called sperm QT that actually looks at some of the genes that determine how well a sperm can bind to penetrate and actually fertilize the egg. These genes can be what we call dysregulated, so abnormally turned on or off. And if the sperm don't have the mechanisms to figure out how to get into the egg, that's going to cause a problem and that's going to significantly decrease the chances of timed intercourse or IUI working, but actually IVF is going to be a great option. So that may be um, something else to consider in your armamentarium of figuring out what's going on. Um, Carrie, do you have kind of the episode number that we talked more in detail about sperm QT? Yeah, we talked with Dr. Kristen uh, Brogard of Sperm or Path Fertility, which is the company that that created sperm QT. That's episode number 184. That was a really interesting episode too. I would yeah. highly recommend listening to that. It's really good. Um, like one other thing I'd throw in there, and she may have said this too, is tubes. I don't know if her tubes have been checked. Sometimes when you have a young patient um, in their 20s that, um, you know, that, that have good egg count, good sperm number, a lot of people kind of overlook that and kind of think, oh yeah, no problem there. And they don't really look at the tubes very quickly. So if you've not had a tubal assessment, you definitely want to get that done pretty soon. Absolutely. Y'all want to do one more? Sure. All right. Hi there. Just burned through all the back catalog related to IVF <laughs> and endometriosis. Wow. In short, started noticing endo symptoms five years ago, started working with the MIGS provider and got diagnosed informally with stage four endo via MRI in 2021 and mm. went on to have a healthy pregnancy delivery in 22 with no intervention after about a year of trying. Back and hoping for a second baby, this time around, 
HSG confirmed a hydrocelpinx on one tube. Mm-hmm. Given the degree of endo, my makes provider is recommending significant caution around operating to remove it, which means we're going to try IVF with a known hydrocelpinx. Is there any hope? Would you think would you think about this differently? Is there anything else we should consider? I'm really surprised a mixed provider wouldn't want to jump right in and do surgery on that tube. Um, generally, we recommend, even if you have advanced endometriosis, we recommend taking the tube out. Now, I will say that there are certain situations where, you know, and you didn't tell us this, but if you'd had, I don't think you said you'd had a lot of other surgeries, but you know, there's some patients where absolutely, if you've had a bunch of surgeries, if you've had bowel perforations and fistulas and infections, those are the kind of patients where, you know, when you look at the risk and benefits, you've got to kind of look at that with everything you do. Those are situations where I would say, you know, I just, I, particularly if you have more than one normal embryo, I would say, let's just try and get you pregnant without doing surgery on that tube. But I think in a situation like this, and I certainly respect the fact, and I've seen lots of people in the past with endometriosis, really bad endometriosis, that's one of the hardest surgeries that you can do. And and generally, even the GYN oncologist who would sometimes operate with us or do a lot of our surgeries now would say that's a really difficult surgery and really, you know, there are risks involved with it. You know, I think the great majority of time people do fine with that. And a lot of times they even feel better because if the tube is blocked and dilated, it may be kind of strictured. And as it gets bigger and bigger, you can have pain from it. So I would really think seriously about having that tube out because I think medically it may be good for you in the long run. And it it definitely is going to increase your chances. Not to say you can't get pregnant if you leave the tube in, but there's, you know, for 20 years, we've known that it significantly drops your pregnancy rate by somewhere between 30 to 40 percent. Um, if you leave the tube in place. I also want to make the point that we don't want to like lose the forest for the trees type of situation in that you don't actually have to remove the entire tube. You can have mm-hmm. a ligation yep. or a re- removal of a section of the tube because the entire purpose is to keep that fluid that's in the tube from going back into the uterus. So, you know, if you have a hydrocelpinx, we like to remove it. Okay, but sometimes with advanced endometriosis, it's more dangerous for us to do that Mm -hmm. where, you know, the real purpose of what we're trying to do is keep that fluid from going back in. And and I would say that the number of people who have hydrocelpinks and the number of people who have hydrocelpinks that we really shouldn't operate in any way, shape or form, that second number is 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 very small. And I mean, yeah. I'm a pretty conservative surgeon mm-hmm. and that I don't want to take everybody to the operating room. I, I That's kind of, you know, it, operating room is very good for certain people. And if we need to go there, that that's, a, that's what it's there for. And I think there's good evidence to say that hydrocelpinks are going to significantly potentially decrease your odds and something that should be very, very effective. Now, if you do fall into that category that for some reason you're a very poor surgical candidate or or whatever that is that we just don't have from all of the information we have here, you know, sometimes we give those people antibiotics going into their embryo transfer. Um, and I think all of us have had some success with that and that type of thing. Um, but you want to look back when you go through your IVF cycle, a Im- very important thing is If you're not successful, you want to be able to look back and be like, I did what was right for me. Okay. And if that is potentially doing something to keep that icky fluid from going back into the uterus, you might want to get another opinion. There's um, a protocol that when I was going through fellowship, we always called the Schlaff protocol because the the, one of the authors of the article was Bill Schlaff. Um, And I can't tell you any more about the 
the protocol itself, like where it originated besides that. But I do remember that it showed that the success rates using two weeks of doxycycline were fairly equivalent to removing the tube. And oh. so for people where surgery just is not an option, two weeks of doxy is, is a thought. Um, as I was kind of clicking through and like, okay, what else have we talked about that's relevant to this? There's There are a couple of things. So episode 152 is on endo. 161 and 178 are both related to tubal factor. Um, and then 171 is related to receptiva. And the receptiva tests for endo and for inflammation. And so I'm actually less, I don't care about doing the testing for endo. You already know we already like that's already dealt with, but the inflammation may actually be a little bit more helpful for you, particularly she if had surgery. She hasn't she had, had surgery. surgery, hadn't been treated. So it hasn't been dealt with. Yeah. Wait, I thought she said she was working with a mix provider who diagnosed but they didn't her. want to do I surgery on her. By MRI. She hasn't had surgery. Yeah. Oh, by MRI. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. They hadn't done surgery. They don't want to do surgery on her. I she had really, really needs receptiva. Yeah. I feel like we, I feel like there's something missing here in terms of the information because. Well, that's what I said. I've never met like somebody that did meds that didn't want to do surgery. surgery. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So for our other listeners, a MIGS doctor, and I can't remember what the letters stand for, but basically they Minimally do gynecologic surgeon surgery, and they like to operate and they do it really, really well. That's their niche in training. So it's really unusual for somebody that's MIGS trained to not want to do surgery on endometriosis. That's kind of what they do a lot of actually. So yeah, that, and I think that's what was so interesting when I was <laughs> question it was like oh I, I saw my mix provider and we diagnosed by MRI All right, and, yeah yeah and so something what we're talking about is that if you have this receptiva test test for a chemical called BCL6 BCL6 can be caused from endometriosis or other sources of inflammation and so that's what Carrie was talking about but again we have like a whole episode um, about that for for a lot more detail yeah what episode was a receptiva one 171. 171. Yeah. Perfect. Well, very good. Any other final thoughts you guys have? Keep on sending questions. These, these are great. Yeah. We love them, especially because it makes us go back and look up stuff. And yeah, it keeps it, us, it, keeps it us fresh. Up when we haven't talked about things like we haven't talked about endometriosis in the better part of a year. So that's going to yeah. be a short list of we should talk about that sometime soon. So that's right. Well, great. Well, so to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook and give us some good ideas on the IVF book that we're starting to write. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions answered in the segment will be done anonymously, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas as well, so let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Millions of women worldwide swear by Ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Therologics for balancing hormone levels. Therologics also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Therologics products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Therologics, supplements from science.